Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher, and today we got on the line, we're just sitting right next to me here, this is a live in-person, live in the sense that's recorded and then put on the internet, live in-person discussion about theology. My guest, of course, Joseph Sabo, joining us again, uh, our regular guest. You want to say hi to the audience? I'm too nervous. <laughs> too nervous. He's petrified. I'm just kidding. So, today we're going to be talking about uh, systematic theology. That's been the theme the last couple of weeks. We had, had a podcast on what makes a bad systematic theology. And, and what we discussed there is uh, this proof texting where, where you grab short phrases out of context and you use it to build a narrative. And in that video, uh, I made a mocking or a, a humorous attempt to, to make a systematic theology around mankind, showing mankind is omniscient. And uh, using the same type of proof text you would find about making God omniscient, the same biblical proof text with the same phrasing can be used for man. But obviously, obviously, contextually, those phrases don't mean what, what the Calvinist or what the negative theologian would want to make those, those phrases mean. And you were able to watch that podcast, right? What were your impressions? I did. I thought that the... Uh taking the same verses and applying them to like a man like you did and saying you know because man knows this that means that he's omniscient it exposes one of the fundamental errors that you would find in a poor systematic theology which would be inconsistency like if you if you interpret one passage one way because it applies to god and then interpret essentially the same words a different way because it is speaking the subject of the sentence is a man then you have some problems i think that that problem at its core is probably that you're trying to divine, you know, metaphysical concept, concepts of how God should be and then taking that back into the text. Yeah, so it's an invalid hermeneutic, we'd say. Yes. And in, in my latest uh, podcast, one with Skylar Fiction, we talked about we talked about the Enuma Elish again. And there's a podcast on the Enuma Elish which shows the language of the Enuma Elish. If that was read by Calvinists, if the Calvinists thought the Enuma Elish with scripture, they'd find plenty of proof texts for their theology, even though the entire narrative contradicts what they would want to draw from those verses. So, uh, using proof texting, vague phrases to form in place of metaphysical concepts to override narrative is a bad strategy for reading the Bible or, or any ancient Near East text. That's what we need to keep in mind when we're dealing with the Bible. We're not dealing with a metaphysical, systematic theology. We are instead dealing with ancient Near East religion, ancient Near East ideas. We need to put ourselves in their mindset, uh, transport ourselves back into their world, try to see how they saw the world. Right. And the reason for that is not necessarily that, you know, asking metaph metaphysical questions about the world is a bad thing. It's not. It's just that you wouldn't take a cooking book and try to put together an engine with it. You know, it's... The, the texts of the Old Testament are written by a certain people in a certain culture that don't ask the kinds of questions that people maybe bring to the Bible and try to get answers for. So, you know, the ancient Hebrews aren't asking, does God have parts? They aren't asking, um, you know, is God motionless? You know, they aren't asking these kinds of questions and the texts aren't written to answer these kinds of questions. So it's unfair to the authors of the Bible and to yourself, really, if you're going to try to try to ask something from a text that it's not offering you, you have to go there, try to get as much culture as you can, you know, information about the surrounding culture that you can, and then try to 
draw some things out of it. Yeah, so I'm going to quick uh, run over to a Colin Gunter quote. And let's uh, pull that up here on the screen. Divine being and divine action. This is from his Act and Being uh, Towards a Theology of Divine Attributes. And he writes this, Divine being and divine action. That's the, that's the subtitle. This is another version of the same problem. He's talking about the differences between Greek and Hebrew thought. Greeks appear to stress a theology of divine being. Hebrews of divine action. So you see, you see the contrast going on. The, the Greeks care about who God is, what, what's, what's the metaphysical substance of God, what are, what are these attributes of God that are metaphysical in nature. Oh, he has to be all power. He has to be all perfect or all enchanted. They care about a theology of divine being. Whereas the Hebrews stress one of divine action. It's, it's a relational God. Yahweh is relational and they care about what he does, what he says, how he interacts, who he is through his actions. Writing of the structural problems which are intrinsic to the Christian doctrine of God, Christoph Swobel identifies this one in particular, the antinomy between the conception of divine attributes in philosophical theology and discourse about divine action in the Christian faith. This is illustrated by a point often made by Robert Jensen, that there's a tendency to identify the divine attributes by a list of omnis and negatives, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, infinite, and eternal, and the rest, and then paste them onto conceptions of divine action, especially that central to the biblical account of what is called the economy of creation and redemption, the temporal structured events in which God creates, upholds, redeems, and will, perf and will perfect the created world. So what he's saying there is that the, the, trying to use Greek lenses to look at the Bible res results in us trying to reread narratives. There's narratives of what God says, thinks, and does. God repents. Genesis 6, of course, is our classic example. And uh, divine negative theology, when they come to that, they need to do something with that. So they reinterpret the events in light of that. Oh, uh, God doesn't change. Man changes. Or that, that event didn't happen. What that's just illustrating is some sort of marker of divine, not, not change per se, but a divine alteration of process which is eternal it's an eternal process and that's it it's a disingenuous way of treating the text you don't want to treat the text of the bible especially in the narrative in light of greek thought that is fairly alien to the bible you don't get anything approximating that uh, before paul let's say and paul was dealing with the greeks so you're going to probably see a little bit more dealing with this uh, theology of being in paul rather than the hebrews who didn't have this conception that's true. And um, also, I think that approaching approaching the scripture, you know, with these presuppositions as far as, you know, what God is supposed to be like, it really it robs you of, you know, just how relational God is. You know, it's like you have faith that God is going to be good because he has proven himself to be good in the past. You know, like that is a that is a Hebrew thought. You know, as opposed to maybe a Greek thought, which would be, well, God is, you know, perfect, not composed of parts, omnipresent and omniscient. So for those reasons, he's good. You know, it's more of a it's more of a God's essence versus his character kind of thing almost. Mm -hmm. And so if you guys had watched my last podcast with Scholar Fiction again, he wanted a, a description of God that's metaphysical, that God acts on. These metaphysical principles and God can't violate these principles and, and God's an input output robot 
Whereas you got a certain action and ding, it's a sin or ding, it's not a sin. It's inputted into God and then there's some sort of metaphysical output. Whereas in reality, when you see who God is in, in the Bible, he's a person. He, he loves, he cares, uh, he, he has strong emotions. The emotions sway his actions. He relates to people, he deals with people. He changes based on actions of people. He changes based on his own emotions. He changes based on even public perception. Is one of the things that God changes his mind from doing things based on how it will be taken by other people. It's an entirely relational uh, aspect that we find in the Bible. The, the Hebrew metaphysics, metaphysics to the extent they had metaphysics, was relational. God is a person and God interacts with people. It's not this metaphysical pursuit. What is the substance of God? Is the substance of God the same as the substance of Jesus? Uh, or is it like substance? Is it the same substance? Is God this uh, pure actuality versus is God, or what, what's, what's the metaphysics of God? Is he outside of time? These are not concepts that are germane to the Hebrew religion. They, they just don't think in these categories. And so it's very alien to the text. And you do a lot of damage to the text when you try to import those concepts onto the text. Yeah. And it's, it's okay to ask those questions. You know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But the problem comes when you go to the Bible for those answers. You know, it's, it's not going to be in there. And I would say just my opinion would be that, you know, if we were writing out systematic theology, I think that the number one attribute of God is that he's relational. I think that everything else stems from that. You know, you could, you could maybe make an argument for the whole, you know, God is love sort of thing. But even that in, is, is either a metaphysical concept and a statement or it is just an expression of his r relationality, I guess, if that's a word. So if I was writing a systematic theology, I think that would, you know, defining the attributes of God, I think that that would probably be, number one, God is relational. Because everything he does is based on relation. It's for other people. It's you know, to to reciprocate his love, you know, it's that is his true essence. So proper systematic theology, since the Hebrews thought in terms of relationship and not metaphysics, you're going to expect a better systematic theology to actually go over not not the metaphysics of God, not uh, the substance of God, uh, God's uh, absolute attributes, uh, your your normal systematic theologies. When you read them, that's that's not a proper systematic theology. Instead. What you're going to find as a better systematic theology is a character profile. Now, I have a video that's mocking Calvinists, and it's called "A Calvinist Reads Pride and Prejudice." You have a video mocking Calvinists? I don't know. I don't know why. <laughs> They're not easy to mock or anything. No. But uh, the point of the video is uh, it goes through where there's this Calvinist, and he's taking these little bits and pieces out of this book. And this book is about interactions between this Mr. Darcy and other characters in the book. And by pulling out little snippets and applying absurd metaphysics to it, uh, the Calvinist comes to this absolutely ridiculous uh, character picture of who Mr. Darcy is, which then overrides the narrative. But uh, you go to any English class, you go to any class who actually cares about the literature, and a proper systematic theology of Mr. Darcy would be better classified as maybe a character sketch, a profile. So I got that pulled up here on SparkNotes, and so this is, would be a better, it's a character profile. God is a person in the Bible. God has emotions, he has actions, he has uh, growth and development over the course of the plot of the Bible. And just, just the SparkNotes on William Darcy, it talks about who he is as a person, what he does, uh, how he grows, 
throughout the story and his, his temperament, those are important things. Because The Pride and Prejudice is a story about people. It's not, a, it's not like a mechanical metaphysics, input, output. It's not like coding. It's not a book about coding, uh, making the right syntax perfectly. It's about people. It's about relationships. And so a good systematic theology, and I pointed to in, in my systematic theology podcast, is these Old Testament theologies, like Walter Brueggemann's Theology of the Old Testament, because those focus not on God's inner being, God's metaphysics, but rather on things he does and how he does them and what, it, what his uh, standards for action is. It, it focuses on the divine act which is really a Hebrew mindset as opposed to the Greek mindset, which doesn't care about act. Remember, in, in Platonism especially, divine act is a bad thing. It's a negative thing because God is moving. God is changing, which defeats this perfect perfection. It creates composition. It creates predicates in God. And so they don't like this uh, divine act. So they focus on this divine being to the exclusion, and then they discount everything in the Bible where it's, t it's actually talking about how God thinks and how God's thought process and doing certain things. And the Bible gives us insight to these things. Genesis 6, again, the classic example, it goes into God's mind. He says, I regret making man who I've created. And then it's reinforced by the narrator. So it's a, it's a window to the picture of God's mind, which doesn't work if you're focusing on metaphysics. Right. And it's important to note, too, that, you know, those great philosophers, they, uh, they basically looked at the world around them and said, the eternal heavenly realm has got to be the complete opposite of this. I mean, that's kind of the extent of the thinking, you know. So because there's movement here, there must not be movement in God. Because there's, you know, imperfection here, there must be com complete perfection in God. Because there's individual parts here, God must be made of no parts. And then what's happened over time is christians have adopted those concepts and then read them back into the bible and then taught them to people for generations and generations so now we find ourselves in a situation where if you if you walk up to just a normal christian and say what does it mean that god's relational you might get a blank stare i don't know you know maybe they'll drone themselves a little bit but if you say what is omniscient what is omnipresent they're gonna i mean right there with answers they got proof text for you they got whatever you want to know you know if but if you ask you know what is the what is the theme of the Bible or, you know, how is God working with creation in order to, or working towards, you know, perfecting creation? I mean, they're going to have nothing for you. And, and Bob Anner, he puts out this uh, shortcut to thinking about Greek thought versus Hebrew thought, whereas Greek thought uh, really prioritizes the quantity. How much knowledge yeah. does God have? Uh, how much change does God have? Or how little change does God have? Or... Uh, the, these spatial attributes, how, how uh, transcendent is God? What's, what Israel emphasized is the relational. They, they emphasize the quality, quantity versus quality. God is loving in this way. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him shall have eternal life. It's saying in this way, this is God showing his love for humankind. It's a relational act. And this, the whole Bible is relational theology. Yeah, and I mean, it's not sacrosanct that change is bad, you know. I mean, do you care if God changes? Like, his mind? Is that okay with you? Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I mean, does that... Right, like, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's imperfection in a being or 
anything ridiculous. I mean, that's just kind of a ridiculous concept in and of itself to think that, well, you changed your mind. That means that you weren't perfect before. Therefore, you're not God. I mean, that doesn't, that kind of doesn't even make sense to me, to be honest. Right. The metaphysics that the Greeks try to import onto reality, they're contrary to our own experiences. Absolutely. Like when, just even look at how language works. You pull up the definition of something in the dictionary. It's an approximation. It's a conceptualization of abstract concepts that might not be mechanically literal. Like what does beautiful mean? There, there's a wide variety of what it could mean to be beautiful. There's a wide variety of what it could mean to be loving. These, these are broad concepts that, that the word is a shortcut. It's a conceptualization, a shortcut. Whereas Greek theology, a Hellenistic outlook, will take these attributes like love and say, oh, love is this uh, metaphysical thing, and God is pure love, and these are the attributes of pure love that God must have. So you're going outside of what we experience, how we experience the world in these abstract, broad, and not wholly defined categories, and you're trying to move to a system of this X equals Y plus Z, uh, all this mechanical operating of how how the reality works, but it just it's just not um, it's just not our normal experience, not our normal experience of how we experience life. We experience life more like the Hebrews did, whereas there's relationship and change, and there's not these strict absolutes. Like even on my last podcast, we were talking about this a little bit earlier. What is sin? Does sin have to have a mechanical definition that you input an action? And then that action goes through a series of uh, if-then-else loop checks. And then the output is, beep, that's a sin, or beep, that's not a sin. Is, is, is that how sin works? It's definitely not, you know. I mean, it, like, sure, there's certain things that are morally wrong all the time, absolutely. For anybody and under any circumstances, you know. But there's things that, for me, it might be sinful for me to partake in that Chris has complete liberty to do, you know. It, it depends on... A few different things you know there's there's situations like that you know and i noticed another thing that you know these systematic theologies do is they answer questions that i'm not asking you know that i don't know anyone that you know when they go to church for the first time they think to themselves well does is god does he does he have a city you know yeah. i mean i don't no one asks these questions you know so it's it's like creating a false problem and then giving you a fake solution and then it's basically just running around in circles chasing your tail and you get no answers at the end of it and nothing makes sense. Yeah, I'd, I'd say absolutely. So when people question Christians on these concepts, you'll, you'll see that these atheists, these skeptics calling out Christians to account. So Matt Slick, oh, what does this perfection mean? That doesn't line up with this, this other little definition that you had over here. And the, th These were not... These are not germane concepts to the writers of the Bible. They had they didn't care about these. They weren't in their mindset. And you operate life perfectly well without these concepts. They didn't care that the underlining structure of the universe. So, so imagine let's let's just even pretend we're talking about physics. And so and says, oh, electrons are the smallest particles. And then people go further and further. And they say, oh, the the underlying basis of all reality is string theory or something like that. What, what they're doing is they're getting so abstract and, and such, so in the weeds that they're, they're missing the reality of what we actually experience, this, this relational world of choice. They're caring about the underlying structure, but what does that matter? How does that benefit us 
And uh, does it does it does it even matter? Does it make a difference? And if I think one thing that the quantum physicists have proven is that they don't know anything really, you know. Yeah. And that's kind of like the same principle with like going to the Bible for metaphysics. Is like you, sure you can you can create a definition for something and then put it into that box. But at the end of the day, it's like you're not getting that information from the text. You're not doesn't help you in any way whatsoever. It doesn't explain anything you know, with any real clarity, it's just, you know, words on a page, you know. Um, right, so it's, it'd be like saying if someone can't prove the underlying structure of reality, then how, that, my how, TV's not there. Yeah, then, then we can't know anything because we right. don't understand the basic structures of being. And so someone says, oh, there's problems with string theory. That means everything you believe is out the window. No, it doesn't matter. And uh, you, know, you and I, we, we realize it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't affect our day-to-day -day life. It's not germane. It's not germane. So Christians always get up st stuck uh, debating atheists and skeptics. And these problems that with don't have like real solutions. And they only think that these uh, problems need to have solution is solutions because they're coming to the Bible with that Hellenistic outlook. They're saying, what's the underlying structure of reality? And how can we get at the most pure idea of truth? Rather than relational, rather than abstract, rather than act, seeing action, and using that action to build generalities. Right. It's like you could ask the question, like, will God accomplish his plans because he's powerful and able to? Or will he accomplish his plans because he knows he will? You know, like those, that is like the the dichotomy, I think, in a question, you know. It's like, are things going to turn out the way that they will because God knows that they will? Because God's omniscient? Or is it going to happen because God is able within time to work with people? He's powerful enough to, to bring his goals about. Yeah, exactly. So the rifting off of that real quick, Isaiah 40 through 48, roughly, is all about that. It's not uh, God can do things because look at these great attributes of metaphysics and, and God can't be anything less than the most all-powerful thing and and uh, he's the greatest being imagined. You don't get that. Yeah, Israel did not think like that. Instead, his power acts are evidenced in his past history of things he has done. And Walter Brueggemann writes this in his Theology of the Old Testament. This is the closest we have currently to like a real systematic theology that profiles who Yahweh is. He says this, It is evident from the outset in Israel's most characteristic testimony that right speech about Yahweh concerns Yahweh's power to transform, to create, and engender. Yahweh is a God of action. Remember back to act and being. Hebrews thought in action. Hebrews thought in relation. And Greeks thought in being, in metaphysics. All right, moving on, he's, uh, another quote from Walter Bergerman. He says this, At the core of Israel's theological grammar are sentences governed by strong verbs of transformation. Remember, act, not being. They're concerned about God's action, who he is as a person. God is a person. Bergerman writes, Such sentences are so familiar to us that we may fail to notice the oddity of their grammar and therefore neglect such a theological beginning point. We grow, we grow up in this culture that's, that's dominated by Hellenistic outlook. Discrete thinking, for example. Uh, we, I talked a little bit about the bodies of God before. Uh, oh, yeah. Bodies of God where, where ancient Near East thought didn't have these discrete categories per se about who God is. So God could be engendered in multiple bodies yet be the, be the same. 
because they didn't think in the Hellenistic terms. And when Skylar Fiction, in the latest podcast, he questions that. He says, oh, that can't be. He's wanting to impose Greek categories on ancient Semitic thought. So it's a categorical error. When you come to the Bible with an Hellenistic out, outlook and try to mold the Bible into a Hellenistic outlook, it's a categorical error because you're just not understanding the mindset. You're not coming from the right starting point. And you get that from just reading the Bible. You understand that. Walter Brueggemann goes on. This focus on sentences signifies that Israel is characteristically concerned with the action of God, the concrete, specific action of God, and not God's character, nature, being, or attributes, except as those are evidenced in concrete action. This focus on verbs, moreover, commits us in profound ways to the narrative portrayal of Yahweh, in which Yahweh is the one who is said to have done these deeds. Could yeah. have said it better myself. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so the generalities you see about God, oh, God, God is powerful, God knows all things, uh, you know, there, there, there's that language, like in the Psalms, God looks on the actions of man and sees all things. Those, those descriptions of God are generated by larger narrative and not vice versa. You don't want to take the, the small, short eclipse about who God is and then override the longer narrative. Just like we were talking about with Pride and Prejudice, you have to go the other way. You go from the narrative and then you understand the specific uh, descriptions of who these characters are. That's just, just any relational text. Anything outside of a computer programming manual, you're gonna read this way. Any ancient Near East text. You imagine reading the Enuma Elish and seeing this these fights between these different gods. And uh, one god is created and rises to prominence and defeats the old gods. And then all these, all these uh, after the fact, all these titles are given to him that he's unchanging and his will cannot be opposed. And imagine trying to take those titles and then overriding the narrative. That would be silly to us. It Absolutely. just it doesn't fit what's going on in the text. So we need to treat the Bible as what it is and not try to make the Bible into something it's not. And so a lot of times with these theological questions, these metaphysical questions, an okay answer is maybe this is true, maybe this is true, maybe it's irrelevant. Maybe it's irrelevant. You know, yeah, maybe it's irrelevant. It's okay for things to not matter. That's, yes, that's okay. You the, know, I and I think a lot of this problem too comes from like we don't read the Bible like we read other books for some reason, and I don't understand why that is. You know, you don't read Pride and Prejudice searching for the metaphysical principles that are motivating whoever. You know, no one no one reads books like that, but for some reason when we read the Bible, it's it's like your whole everything just changes like you don't read it like it's literature you know that's how it should be read the bible should be read like it's literature and then from that just just like you would read any of those books on the shelf read it that way you know yeah even skeptics are conditioned to think in this way so when they come to the bible i want a metaphysical definition yeah. of sin i want a metaphysical description of god i want to know how these uh, these attributes function with one another in mechanical ways Rather than, if you're studying a person, you understand sometimes I'm nice, sometimes I'm really mean, uh, sometimes I'm snarky, a lot of times I'm happy, a lot of times I'm smiling and having a good time, and sometimes it's just the joy and the pain of others. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I could be a little bit vindictive. And you, you get a lot of those attributes in Yahweh, actually, when reading the Bible, and, and they'll try to say, oh, look at this time that 
Yahweh was really angry. It's like, well, I might be angry too in that situation. Looking Absolutely. At, looking at the evidence of what's going on and, and considering the history. Right, but God's not allowed to get angry because that would mean that he's not God or something stupid, right? Yeah, it's like, oh, God needs to be, he's, he, he has to be Spock. You're like, I'd have no emotions. Oh, he got angry a few times. Well, though. except for when it's convenient to the narrative oh, of, of Star, of Star Trek. Trek. You got to advance the plot. It's okay for him to get angry now. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. You got to advance the plot somehow. Right. So even even in Star Trek, their most logical creature has to be related to us in a personal way because naturally, that's how we experience the world. We experience the world relationally in the Hebrew mindset. That, that's the funny thing to me. We got ourselves so down this mathematical corridor that we, we don't even apply our experience of reality to the Bible. No. It's, I don't know, it's weird. I don't know how to say it other than that. Indoctrination <laughs> maybe? I don't know. Yeah, it's, you know. It, it's just per, per, pervasive, I'd say. Yeah. I mean, for me, I guess growing up in church and everything, you're kind of beat over the head with the omnis and ms from a very young age and it takes a lot to work out of that i suppose you know <laughs> yeah let's figure out god's metaphysics let's figure out his substance what is he made of what are atoms made of what is the underlying substance of reality is it the string theory it's like who's asking these questions and why and what are they getting out of those questions and do those questions matter or is there a meta there's there's a meta world where the underlying factors of how reality works it's irrelevant it, it just doesn't affect our daily life. It doesn't do anything for us to understand the, the close details. Right. And, well, I mean, string theory, too. It's like, what answer are you even going to get? Let's say you figure out what every little particle is made of, right? But down to the smallest, tiniest conceivable particle. What does that solve? What's the, like, what's the issue? I don't understand. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's kind of like the same way... I suppose if you're trying to get at, you know, God's metaphysical construction, like what does that end up solving at the end of the day? You have a book that's thousands of pages of the history of the world and God's relationship with it, and you're asking if he knows everything right now. So imagine, going back to the Pride and Prejudice example, imagine you're reading Pride and Prejudice and I come along and I say, uh, that book doesn't make any sense because it doesn't take into account string theory. Tell me, tell me its underlying system of how physics works in the world. The book's not about that. No. It doesn't care about that. It's 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 not germane to the conversation. And so yeah, yeah. I mean, we we might be criticized for saying, well, this can be true and this can be true, and you know, and and uh, brainstorming different answers to these metaphysical questions. But that's okay to do because the, the Bible, number one, is not a systematic theology. It's just not. It's a story about a person, and you can follow that story, the plots, the terms, the twists. You can speculate once you move away from that core story into these finer details. That's why there's a lot of debate about these details because it's just not germane to the story. So people have to read into the Bible in order to extract these these details that, that the original authors, they just didn't care about. No. A good historian will try to recreate the world that they're they're viewing. When you're viewing ancient literature, you'll say, this is what they say, so this is what they probably believe, and try to recreate that world in their mind. And so did these people, did they care about this this metaphysics? Are, are you going to try to impose those categories on those people? It doesn't make sense to me. No. So let's real quick uh, give a, like a better systematic theology, who God is. Yahweh, 
He's the creator of the universe, creator of the world, which I would say by that quality makes him the ultimate God, that he created everything, right? Well, yeah, that's the... That's like the argument made in quite a few passages is that Yahweh's the creator. And it's it's because of that reason alone in some passages. It's not because he's made out of a certain thing. No. He's, he's made out of glitter that's better than other glitter. His glitter's pretty good, though. He's got, he's got the best He's got glitter. the glitter. Uh, I made this uh, little cartoon when, when back when bit strips were real popular. Like... And it was uh, Will Duffy and I. That was for like it. that was for like six months. That's it was pretty good. Yeah, but then they they canceled this uh, Bitstrips app. I had so many good cartoons, but the one was uh, about the metaphysics of God, and it's me arguing with Will Duffy, and he's like, "The best God in the world wears one hat." And I'm like, "Well, the best God wears two hats." Yeah. Oh, oh, I just one up to you. That's all oh, you gotta man. do. Just one up. one up. He's got the best glitter. The best glitter. But, but that's not a character of who Yahweh is. Yahweh is the creator. He interacts with man. It appears throughout the Bible that the plot of the Bible is God's relationship with man. God attempting to reach and commune and love man. And reconcile. And reconcile. Reconcile with man. Uh, but it's a continual change of plans. It's a continual change of strategy because mankind is ultimately unpredictable. And, and stubborn. And stubborn and thwarts God. And as Christine Hayes says, she's a secular scholar, Yale scholar. She says his learning curve is steep in learning about man. So he keeps trying these different strategies to reach mankind. Eventually, moving from trying to commune with all of mankind to trying to commune with all of mankind through a priest nation. But that itself fails within the biblical narrative. And then enter the scene, Jesus, which tries to reconcile Israel to God and in Romans that also fails so god has to open up that reconciliation to the gentiles we move from a priest nation to uh, to uh, equality between jews and gentiles which was never before the jews thought this was the most terrible thing in the world paul was in prison because he's teaching not to circumcise he's like I i'm in chains because i'm teaching people not to circumcise so he's persecuted for for teaching this change of plan that that we see consistently throughout the bible when we're looking at this and one thing, too, that I was just thinking of, like, when you bring up Paul, this is just like an inconsistency in a lot of people. Is People will say that God can't change his plans, or we'll just take that statement in and of itself, right? Well, what you mean when you say that is that all the promises that God made to Israel weren't real. He didn't really mean those things. He didn't really say those things. Well, he might have really said them, but he didn't mean them. Um, and also, in the same breath, you're saying that because most of those people think like, you know, okay, well, the law is done away with also at the same time, right? And that's a different question. But they'll say like, God can't change. God can't change his plans. And the law is done away with. Like those things just don't, does not compute. You know, mm -hmm. you, you have to, you have to accept that either, either God can try to do something and it doesn't work and he moves on to something else or he's disingenuous. It's, there is no... There's no gray area there. It's one or the other. A friend of mine once said, he says, unless you still circumcise all your kids and you think circumcision is necessary, you're, you're a dispensationalist in some sense of the word. In some sense, sure. You know, yeah. That God changes his strategy based on time, people, location, place. And God changes. That's, it's, it, is, it is the underlying narrative of the Bible. And ultimately, we, we're told the to end as well. We have all these apocalyptic texts of what will happen in the future, 
God will return, judge the wicked, judge the righteous, and establish a godly kingdom to reign forever. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that too. That's that's a good prayer is uh, let your kingdom come, let your will be done. Because his kingdom is not yet here, per Jesus, and his will is not yet done, per Jesus. This is what the Christian hope is, is our restoration of God's rule on earth, a return to God. The, that's the God's ultimate biblical plan is to implement this system throughout the Bible. And, I, I mean, people can dismiss this. Oh, God doesn't change. God knows the end from the beginning and stuff like that. And when they say that, they mean it like in a metaphysical sense. They don't even actually believe that. They believe God is timeless and he has this inherent knowledge of all things. So they don't believe God has pre-knowledge. They believe God has timeless eternal knowledge. But God knows the end from the beginning in the sense that he will make it happen. He has an end state in mind, and he's moving humanity to that goal. And, you know, just as John the Baptist says, there might be some, some people who, who give opposition, but God has innovative ways of solving the problems. Even if all of Israel rebels against him, God could raise children of Israel from these stones. And what does he do in uh, Romans 9? He, he incorporates Gentiles into Israel whole. It was a surprise move. That's his, uh, you know, it's his, uh, you're playing Uno, and it's his draw four card. Like, boom. Right. And it's, it says that that's done in order to cause Israel to be jealous yeah. of the Gentiles and bring them back to God. So that is a perfect example of God doing things. I said that. God doing things. Yeah, God doing things. In order to try to achieve his goals. Because God is a God of action. God's not a God of immutability. It's, it's so painful that people take this living, dynamic God, described as living throughout the Bible, and then they say he's immutable. He doesn't change. He can't relate to people. He can't have predicates. There can't be any communion. That It's, it's not the Bible. That's Greek metaphysics. That's, that's a Hellenistic mindset that was so far from the Jewish thinking that you, you can't find any trace of that in the Bible, which leads to them having to do this proof, te proof texting, which we already mocked several times, using the Enuma Elish, using uh, the metaphysics of mankind, and even using Pride and Prejudice. Good, good novel, Jane Austen, anything by her is golden. He said that earlier. That's twice now. It's good Get stuff. that Jane Austen. Uh, not that movie with that, uh, what's her name? <laughs> Who? Kieran uh, Knightley? I don't know why I said that. I just threw it out. Not, I'm assuming it's Kieran Knightley. Not the Kieran Knightley. Is it really Kieran Knightley? Yeah, not the Kieran Knightley movie. That one. That one's terrible. I really just made that up. That's pretty good. That, that was it. That was it. But but it's good. It's good. Get it. Buy it. Get it. Get it. Buy it. Good. But also get uh, this Colin Gunter act and being. Try to understand the Hebrew versus the Greek mindset. And don't try to force the Bible into being something it's not. It's not a metaphysics text. It's not a systematic theology. It's not about the metaphysical nature of God. And trying to take absolute stances on these things, you're just, you're outside the scope of Hebrew thought. You're outside the scope of what the Bible is. And it's okay to dabble there, but pretending that the biblical authors agreed with you, that's a huge cat categorical mistake. Categorical mistake. Yeah. All right, so I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I thought it was pretty good. We talked a lot, a lot of good concepts here. Um, if you have any questions or comments on this podcast, send that to GodIsOpenQuestions at gmail.com. Send there. those questions. Send those questions. We'll have questions and answer sessions. It'll be good. Our startup thread on the Facebook page or the YouTube page, leave a like. It'll be good. Thank you for listening.
Dude, go to bed.